So, uh, yes, I want to welcome uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor. Uh, so, Colonel, for most people, uh, you probably do not need an in introduction, but for those who are not aware, uh, you're a retired colonel in the U.S. Army, uh, author of several excellent books on warfare, and uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, but also read in the Washington Examiner that you were at one point on the shortlist to be President Trump's uh, national security advisor. And uh, you were also uh, Trump's pick for U.S. ambassador to Germany. I think was blocked in the Senate. Um, I'm not sure if I left anything out, but... Uh, well, I ended up as uh, the senior advisor to the acting Secretary of Defense at the end of the administration. Uh, and I was never blocked by the Senate. Uh, it, we simply ran out of time. Okay. And I think what happened, there were a, a total of 52 appointees uh, that had been nominated by President Trump. And the Senate simply blocked uh, the hearings. In other words, none of us got a hearing. Uh, I guess this was Mitch McConnell's way of keeping anybody who supported Trump out of uh, a job. Well, I think that it's a uh, yeah, combination of your military, uh, political, in and intellectual background obviously made you very popular as both an analyst and as a commentator. And again, I think this is in high demand at the moment because there are many people out there who are very confused about the war in Ukraine. I mean, in the media, there is hardly any discussion about how this war began, except we're told it was an unprovoked invasion of February this year. And there's no debate about how getting an end to it either. So it's a pleasure to you have the chance to speak with you so uh, thanks again and uh, yeah so I thought we can just jump straight into it uh, maybe focus first on the recent development uh, as we very recently saw now uh, Russia withdrew from uh, Kherson city and yet again we're keeping told that Russia is about to be defeated uh, irrespective of this partial mobilization of another 300,000 soldiers on the Russian side so I was just curious what do you see happening at the moment? How do you read this Russian pullout and the recent developments? <clears throat> well, let's uh, let's go back uh, a few months and understand uh, how things changed in the summer. I'm sure many of your viewers saw the initial phase of the operation as a little perplexing, but there were certain assumptions that uh, President Putin adopted and imposed on his commanders that turned out to be invalid. And one of those was that uh, we are moving into an area which is occupied by brother Slavs. And we want to minimize damage to the infrastructure. We don't want to kill civilians. We want to do as little damage, frankly, as possible. And so a very, uh, a really a force too small for the job moved on multiple axes. I would say as many as 100 along a very, very long front of, say, 800 to 1,000 kilometers, and effectively infiltrated into Ukraine. And they met in many cases where there were Russians living with no resistance, but in areas where, of course, there were Ukrainians, they did meet res resistance. And they were hamstrung as to how much they could do and, and how they could attack and so forth. Ultimately, they, they fight through this, and by the middle of the summer, it becomes clear that things cannot go on like this any longer. If they're going to bring an end to this, it is probably not going to come through negotiations because their attempt to negotiate was thwarted in April and May, especially after they thought they were on the verge of having an agreement with Zelensky, who accepted neutrality for Ukraine, 
and was willing to discuss the other issues, which included the autonomy for the uh, Russian-speaking republics in the East and recognition of the legitimate control of Crimea by Russia. Of course, Crimea has been under Russian control essentially nonstop since the 1770s. So the bottom line is uh, those things failed, and they decided, well, we've got to do something else. We've got to change our modus operandi. And, of course, they saw at the same time the massive influx of aid from the United States and Western Europe. I think they were surprised at the extent to which the West European states in particular turned out to be, quote, unquote, vassalized, uh, that they would follow blindly without questioning anything, whatever came out of Washington. I don't think they expected that to happen in Berlin, where they've had really good relations with the Germans for at least the last two decades, I would argue for the last three, and see them as long-term strategic partners, certainly in the commercial sense, but also in security matters. So they decided they're going to have to regroup and uh, reorient the operation. So they secured uh, the areas that you now see on the map, roughly 21% of the territory of Ukraine in the southeast. And they decided to consolidate that position. And quite frankly, holding this Kherson area was of questionable utility. Uh, there was no interest at this point in launching an offensive further west. Uh, they wanted to withdraw the forces there because those forces were, of course, at risk of being flooded by the destruction of the dam to the north of uh, Kherson. Uh, they didn't want these troops to have to deal with this. And so they simply withdrew 30,000 men further west. And uh, I think a lot of those troops are being rested right now and prepared for what comes in the future. And what is coming in the future is a very massive offensive, the kind of thing that, frankly, I and many other military analysts familiar with the Russians expected at the beginning, which are very decisive operations, multiple operational axes designed to effectively annihilate the enemy on the ground. I think that's what's coming now. That's what lies in the future. Yeah, because, well, I guess uh, since the Kharkov offensive of the Ukrainians, uh, the main narrative has been that this was, uh, you know, well, R Russia failing. But uh, uh, I've, I've heard you as well speak before uh, about how to measure uh, victory and success here, that some people merely look towards uh, the territory, uh, territorial control, uh, while you have focused more mm -hmm. on uh, on on the on the uh, on this as a war as attrition, so the ability to exhaust adversaries. I was wondering if you could uh, expand on this. Well, <clears throat> we in the West have a bad habit of attaching far too much significance to quote unquote holding ground. Uh, this obviously began during the First World War. I don't think we've ever successfully divorced ourselves from it. The Russians do not view things through that lens. They have a very different history. They've been dealing with mobile armies, Mongolian, Tartar, Turkish, uh, and they understand that ground is only valuable insofar as it provides you with a tactical advantage or an operational advantage. And usually that's fleeting. Remember, most of the terrain that we're dealing with in Ukraine is relatively open. It's not entirely flat, but it is certainly flatter than, than you're going to see in most other areas, except perhaps northern Germany. Uh, and this terrain has no particular value in most cases unless it helps you to kill the enemy. And so the Russians have looked to the north and to the south and said, this, these, this is terrain that is, quite frankly, not important. And uh, there's nothing 
that we cannot retake again in the future. So when the Kharkov, so-called Kharkov offensive was launched, the Russians had run what we call an economy of force operation up in the north, essentially 2,000 men uh, along a very wide front designed to create the impression that there was something there, but in reality, there really wasn't anything behind them. And so when the Ukrainians attacked, the Russians said, well, we're not going to sacrifice these men in a pointless struggle, so we're going to get out of the way and fall back to the river, which is what they did, the last natural barrier that the Ukrainians could not easily cross. And in the meantime, they've done what they have tried to do from the very beginning, which is maximize the use of what I call the intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, connectivity to strike systems, strike systems being standoff attack whether it comes in the form of rockets, drones, missiles, uh, aircraft, or conventional artillery. So the Ukrainians, and they had about thirty to 40,000 men in this attack, lost 40% of their force just moving across this open ground. And for the last several months, once the decision was made to move over to the strategic defensive and defend these areas that have now been formally annexed into Russia, they were able to inflict enormous damage on the Ukrainians. There are over 100,000 dead Ukrainian troops now. There are at least two, three, four hundred thousand 400,000 wounded. We don't even know. Uh, your more complex systems like HIMARS, the, the much uh, celebrated uh, high-mobility rocket system that we provided, are operated exclusively by American and British contractors. Ukrainians aren't operating them. You, many of the systems that we've provided to the Ukrainians take months uh, for people to master. Uh, for instance, on the HIMAR system, just the driver, and they, they normally have only two people that are on a HIMAR system, the driver who is part of the team of two that operates it has 1,100 tasks to perform quickly before a rocket is even launched. And he has to know those tasks. He has to learn them. So this, this is not uh, your, your grandfather's artillery or your great-grandfather's artillery from the Second World War. As a result, <clears throat> I think the Ukrainians have expended themselves needlessly against increasingly difficult defenses. And we have covered, you know, these, these minor tactical advances of 10 or 20 kilometers and said, ah, oh, look, the Ukrainians are winning. Well, what happened was the Russian commander said, there's no point in defending the line we were given. We're going to fall back to the next defensible position. And in the meantime, we'll set up what the Russians call a fire trap where you take the ISR assets that are overhead and you link them to the strike assets and then you annihilate everything that follows you. This, this is a revolution in warfare. And the, the Russians were the first to figure this out in the 1970s. I, my last book, I covered it in great detail, trying to explain to people that this near instantaneous link between the standoff attack systems that I mentioned earlier and artillery uh, to overhead and terrestrial-based uh, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance assets spells disaster and, and annihilation for anybody that moves within range. And that's what's happened to the Ukrainians. So the Russians have taken far, far fewer casualties. About three or four months ago, for every one Russian casualty, there were five Ukrainian. Over the last 90 days, it's moved up to about one to eight or one to 10. So this has simply bled the Ukrainians in these pointless counterattacks while the Russians have fallen back, consolidated their position, and begun the process that you mentioned earlier of integrating the new 300,000 reservists, fleshing out uh, their forces. 
<coughs> excuse me, and remember that the uh, Russians never employed more than 20% of their own ground force. Well, now we're looking at about 80% of their ground force, plus these reservists. So you have perhaps in the theater itself, all the way around Ukraine now, down in the south and in Western Russia and Belarusia, a total of perhaps 700,000 men in the Air Force and the ground forces <clears throat> support and combat, and probably a quarter of a million to 300,000 combat troops. That is what is now masked, and the idea is to finish this campaign, put an end to it, and put this Ukrainian state out of business, simply because they've discovered we will not negotiate and we will not stop supplying Ukraine. Yeah, well, you mentioned before the United States and Britain uh, sabotaged uh, the peace talks between uh, Moscow and uh, Kiev in uh, was it late March, early April. Uh, and also now there's no desire for talks. Uh, uh, this can also, I guess, be traced back to the Minsk agreement from 2003. Because <clears throat> this was yes. an agreement by uh, Germany and France. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was the US and UK that were never happy. And uh, I'm not sure if you would use the word sabotage. Uh, or well, other I think we in the British simply prevailed upon the uh, French and Germans to do nothing. And so there was no attempt on our part to fulfill, you know, what we agreed to do uh, in the Minsk Accords. But this this is very important now, what I'm about to say, because this illustrates very clearly, in my judgment, where we are. <clears throat> the current chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Milley, uh, and he has a habit of doing these things, which is reprehensible, but nevertheless, he's the senior military advisor to the President of the United States. He was also the senior advisor for the last two years of the Trump administration. And when things do not suit him, or when he is trying to present himself in a more positive uh, manner, he has the bad habit of leaking information from private conversations with the president and his advisors. He did that. And on Saturday, the New York Times printed his leak. He literally picks up the phone and talks to someone at the New York Times. But what he said is very, very, very instructive. And what he said was the following. <clears throat> I advised the president that the Ukrainians had done about as much as they reasonably could do. That was the first part. And I urged him to bring pressure on Kiev or Kiev to negotiate with Moscow. Now, those are two important statements. The first is very true. Ukrainians are in bad shape. They're not prepared for what's coming. He knows that. We have excellent intelligence. We know the forces that are massing. We know how they're equipped, and they're not equipped as the forces were that first went into eastern Ukraine. They have the most modern weaponry available. The Russians have now repeatedly at night demonstrated their ability to target precisely energy, fuel, transportation, and so forth. He knows that the Ukrainians are running out of those things. It won't be long before they run out of food. It won't be long before they're freezing. He knows the serious weakness that characterize Ukrainian forces. So he is saying they have done all that we can reasonably expect them to do. Secondly, it's time to negotiate. This is a good time before the offensive that I have been describing begins. 
because I think he knows that once that begins, that there will be no further discussion under any circumstances between Moscow and Kiev or us until it is over to the satisfaction of the Russians. So I think he sent a very clear and very important signal. I'm not sure he intended to do that, but he did. And I think he's also trying to position himself as saying in the future, well, I warned them that they should negotiate. I warned the president that this would happen. This is his, this is his behavior pattern. But I think he has inadvertently revealed the truth. And that truth is that this is a good time for the Ukrainians to come to the negotiating table. They're not going to get what they would have gotten two months ago. But they, we should really end this war, because the longer this lasts, the higher the probability that we may end up in a direct confrontation with the Russians. No, I agree. And uh, well, I was curious because you mentioned now that uh, the Ukrainians seems to be exhausted. Uh, not, not just their military, their, their their men, military equipment, but also with the economy and also the electric grids now uh, falling apart or being destroyed. Uh, but uh, in terms of its uh, Western sponsors, though, uh, in the context of this being a proxy war, uh, what's the endurance in the West? Uh, is is how, how long do you see Europe being able to continue uh, continue along this path uh, is you know the ukraine fatigue uh, do you expect it to set in and also the united states uh, uh, do you see any changes especially now after the midterm elections will will the outcome have any impact at all uh, in terms of uh, uh, scaling back or is this uh, uh, western unity over this issue and uh, bipartisan consensus within the united states well, let's look first at Europe. <clears throat> and uh, most important in Europe is Germany. Germany is the powerhouse. Germany is the preeminent power, regional power in Europe. And Germany's economy is expected to contract 20 to 30% as a result of the sanctions that have been imposed and the lack of access to natural gas and oil from Russia. That's a disaster. You're, you're talking about the practically the deindustrialization of Germany. Now, for Europeans that don't like Germany, that may seem like a good thing. It's not, because Germany really boosts the economies of the rest of the continent. And if Germany goes down that path, and I think that's where they're headed right now, it's going to be very bad for Europe at large. Now, the, the Italians have already said they don't want to send any more aid unless it's humanitarian. Uh, the latest polls that I saw over the weekend suggest that roughly 40% of the German electorate has, na has now finally reached the conclusion that their government and media are not telling them the truth. They're beginning to see that what the Russians have said and what the Russians are doing is different from what they've been told. I think that is the beginning of the end of the current uh, coalition in Berlin. In addition to that, I think there are others in Sweden and Denmark and the Netherlands and France who are beginning to question. That's certainly the case in Austria, even though Austria is not in NATO. I said from the very beginning that I thought that if this lasted for more than six months, it might very well destroy NATO. Because let's be frank, the national interests of people that live in Sweden or Finland are not the same as the national interests of the people that live in Spain and Italy. All alliances are difficult to hold together in war. 
trying to hold a real military alliance together in what has been peacetime is enormously difficult. And the principal reason for the last decades or so has been that, well, this is another way to reach Washington, the NATO system. This is another way to acquire, acquire money and support, influence, and so forth. Remember, every small power has an interest in exploiting the larger power in pursuit of its own interests. We have multiple small powers doing that sort of thing. But I think what, what has really been exposed more than anything else is that uh, Europe consists of a large number of military dependencies. They're not independent, sovereign states. I was on the phone recently with some French colleagues because I'm sure you're, most of your uh, uh, viewers know that I served at Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, and I spent many years uh, serving in uh, U.S. forces in Germany before I went to Mons. And I know a lot of senior officers who are now retired that I served with back in 1997, 98, 99, and 2000. And, and they've been very blunt. They've said, you know, Doug, <clears throat> the French army has four days of ammunition. The French army is prepared to go on safari in North Africa, and that's it. The German army is almost non-existent. So where, where is this great coalition of the willing coming from that was discussed recently in the media in the United States? Uh, a, a multinational task force that could conceivably enter Ukraine uh, based upon what General Retired Petraeus said. Well, it consists of perhaps 40,000, 50,000 U.S. troops, 30,000 Polish troops, 20,000 Romanians. And this multinational force would at some point potentially stagger into Western Ukraine. When and how and under what circumstances, I have no idea, but the idea is absurd. The Russians are firing 20,000 rounds of artillery every day. The Ukrainians have been firing 7,000 trying to keep up. This is something Europe has not seen, and by the way, neither has the United States in a very long time. It's called a real war against a real enemy, an organized force. NATO was designed to defend, not to wage offensive warfare. We, since the 1990s, have been trying to turn NATO into an offensive instrument. We tried to use it that way in the Balkans and were somewhat successful in our in our conduct of those operations, though I think the outcome is a very questionable long-term strategic viability, as we're finding out. But we've also tried to drag Europe with us uh, into the Middle East, into Libya, into North Africa. Uh, we have tried to drag the Europeans in to augment us virtually everywhere we have decided to use military power. Russia is the latest example. And more and more Europeans are beginning to say, is this really what we want to do? Uh, as I said, I think on uh, some program recently, that when I was talking to a European, I think they were Swiss, I said, where are all of these uh, anxious Norwegian, Danish, Dutch, uh, German volunteers ready to suit up and march east to the Eastern Front and fight the Russians? I said, if they're out there, I haven't seen them. And I don't see much stomach for it in Europe. And by the way, I'm not advocating that. I think the whole idea is very stupid because I never saw Russia today through the lens that is Soviet. Uh, that is, this is not the Soviet Union. This is a very different Russia 
And it is also much more limited in its capabilities that people have pointed out. Now, in the United States, you have a somewhat different picture. The two parties have disappointed Americans for a very long time simply because they have become so much alike. And quite frankly, I, I'm not sure that we can expect very much to change in the near term. Americans are not different from Europeans in one sense. Until things go very badly in the economy, until it hits them, until they can't heat their homes, until they can't afford to buy gas for their automobiles and trucks, until they themselves can't do business, Americans have a bad habit of being very complacent. And so for in the short run, I don't expect a lot to change. But after January, and once we move into the new era, uh, I think we're going to see this Ukraine fatigue begin to sit in because we have spent more money right now on Ukraine than Russia spends on its entire national defense budget. And at the same time, we have people here who are in very bad straits. The border is open. Millions of people are pouring into this country from Latin America and other places. We don't know anything about them. Our crime rates in our cities are astronomical. The rule of law has broken down. There's very little faith right now among many, many Americans in the viability of elections. So I think long-term, we're going to see profound change that ultimately the United States will turn inward and walk away from most of these things. And that's a very important point for the Norwegians and Swedes and others to understand. We are not, we are not technically speaking, a continental power anywhere but in the Western Hemisphere. We are otherwise preeminently a maritime and aerospace power. In other words, we're very much like the British Empire. Where was Britain's strength in its Navy and commercial interests and industrial production? That's the United States. We're just a bigger version of the old British model. And so we are not a nation with the staying power to fight major wars on other people's continents. And if you go back to World War II, we thought that was horrific. We had exhausted our manpower base. We took almost, by, by Soviet standards, almost no casualties. At least 15 million Soviet troops were killed. We think as many as 39 to 40 million people died in the Soviet Union during World War II. Uh, we can't begin to deal with those kinds of numbers. And we would have had no chance against the Germans whatsoever had we not had the Soviets in the East. Our strength was naval and air force. That's what it is today. We have a very small army. If we attempt anything on the continent, we're potentially in a lot of trouble. We're not perhaps as bad off as the French army, but we're not very well off. So I think people need to understand that Putin is a man aware of his limitations, his country's limitations. We Americans don't seem to recognize that. We are very limited in what we can do militarily, contrary to what we think about ourselves. And that's a problem. But I think we will be rescued by economic reality here at home after uh, the first of the year. Yeah, there is an interesting uh, continuity, I guess. Uh, many people don't remember, but after uh, President Clinton's uh, nation building, uh, you know, Bush won the election by calling for no more nation building. Obviously, he did then uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Then you have Obama running for president, offering, again, change and hope. But then... Yeah, he becomes the king of the drones and uh, 
well, uh, Trump also then ran on this platform. Uh, and to his credit, he must have been the first president who didn't start a new war. But but nonetheless, the the, the objective to, for example, transform relations with Russia, I guess, didn't pan out the way uh, well he had hoped either. So there is a there seems to be a yeah, difficulty or a tyranny of status quo, if you will, or a certain endurance to the foreign policy. Well, again, you know, as we talked earlier, Americans have taken for granted that the people in Washington they elect to office will represent their interests. They're discovering that both parties are disappointments. If you were to ask an American on the street in Seattle, Washington, or an American on the street in St. Louis, Missouri, about NATO, you have at least a 50% chance he doesn't even know what you're talking about. And if he does, he may not understand what it really means. When you start to talk about Article 5, when NATO as an alliance might use force in response to what another NATO ally uh, experiences, they have no idea what that means. They, they don't understand the subtleties. So my point is that America, in fact, a, a good friend who's a Spanish officer, was in the Spanish army and served with me, said it best. He said, Doug, you know, the United States is not another country. It's another planet. Well, I, I think he's right. And, uh, you know, I spent most of my life very focused on Europe and the Middle East in particular, but most part of Europe and my focus was always on Germans, Russians and Poles, to be blunt, in, in terms of all my political studies and historical work. Uh, but that's unusual. Most people know nothing about any of it and can't find anything on a map. Now, part of that is our educational system. But remember, if you live in most of the United States, you don't need to know a great deal about what's going on in the rest of the world to be successful, to make money, let alone get elected to office. If you if you sat down with most of the people sitting in Congress and asked them any hard questions about uh, matters today in Ukraine or Eastern Europe, some would repeat the nonsense they're getting to the mainstream media. Oh, the Russians are evil, they're bad, and they commit war crimes, and we have to stop them and save this pristine democracy in Ukraine from destruction, you'll, you'll get a few, but most people, they, they, they won't really know much at all. And so when you ask them, well, how do you vote? Well, now you have to look at their political donors, the people that donate to their campaigns. And that answers your question about why so little seems to change in foreign and defense policy. Because the people with a great deal of money that have grown rich are interested in keeping us committed at very, in, in various places around the world. And the argument is always the same. Oh, if the United States leaves, the world will end. Well, the world was around for 5,000 plus years before we came along. And uh, it's going to be there when we're gone. So I, I, you know, I reject the notion that nothing can happen in the world without American participation. But this was the great myth in the 1990s of the indispensable superpower, that without us, nothing can happen. We're bankrupt. We have trillions in debt. Our economy is in ruins. Our infrastructure needs work. Our armed forces are remarkably small, but we have more generals and more admirals than we've ever had in our entire history. So when you ask me, is anything going to change? Short term, no, but long term, absolutely. We can't go on like this. Yeah, um, yeah switching to a darker topic, uh, the, the potential of nuclear war. Uh, again, um, 
every day almost we read in the media that uh, Russia's uh, threatening with a nuclear with nuclear weapons. Now, I have to be honest, I I'm, I never see any quotes behind this, and uh, uh, what I have read is often uh, warnings that we might walk down this dark path if, if things continue to escalate. But uh, uh, but of course, there's also the the possibility now that the United States has uh, some boots on the ground in Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, how how do you, do you see the prospect of nuclear war uh, as likely or possible, or um, or is this uh, simply uh, exaggerated? Or, and if so, how, how would it happen? <clears throat> well, I've forgotten the uh, name of the man, but I think he spoke for uh, one of the scientific organizations in the United States that monitors this sort of thing. And he told people a few weeks ago that there was less than a 10 to 20 percent chance of nuclear weapons being employed. Now, I don't know how he ended up with that, uh, but uh, that, that seems to have immediately disappointed everyone in the mainstream media who promptly stopped talking to the man. We were the ones that began talking here in Washington about the potential for limited nuclear war. Uh, and this is something that we've dealt with over the last 50 years again and again. We went through this towards the end of the 60s. It reared its head again in the 80s. It is insane. Anybody with any common sense understands that you cannot build so-called tactical nuclear weapons, small, smaller yield weapons of, say, five kilotons or less, hurl those at the Russians or the Chinese or anybody who has nuclear weapons and then say, well, they'll understand that's only a small nuclear weapon. They'll understand it's not a big one. No, what you would get under those circumstances, particularly today with the Russians, if we used a small nuclear weapon, they'd launch a first strike and annihilate us. And we would, in response, launch our strike, and that would annihilate them. We know that. They know that. I think uh, President Biden, although I, I find him very, very disturbing on many, many levels, I think he understands that that is off the table. Now, his advisors, I think, are equally aware of that, but you never know. But I think, I think they understand that's a, a non-starter. The Russians have it enshrined in doctrine, effectively says, Nuclear weapons will be reserved exclusively for the use as retaliatory weapons if at, at any point in time we are attacked with nuclear weapons. In other words, we will retaliate. We will not go down the path of first use. So I think that's very important. And, and the Russians do not talk or discuss any longer limited tactical nuclear war. So that's good news. The bad news on our side is that foolish people have now said, no, we will no longer make the same pledge. We reserve the right to use a nuclear weapon under all and any circumstances if things don't go the way we want them to. And that's what's got people worried. I'm sure Moscow's worried. It worries me because given our weakness uh, on the ground in terms of high-end conventional warfare, that if we did stagger into Ukraine and we took heavy casualties, and we looked ridiculous that someone might raise the specter of using a weapon to cover our failure. Remember, I think your countryman, Mr. Stoltenberg, insists that Ukraine's defeat would represent failure for NATO. I have never seen it that way because Ukraine is not a NATO member. Uh, but nevertheless, that's Stoltenberg's message, which I think reflects the guidance that he's getting from Washington, because we know he's a mouthpiece for Washington. Personally, no, I don't see any evidence that we'll see nuclear weapons used, but you can't dismiss it entirely for the reasons I just outlined. Yeah. Uh, 
And I also wanted to ask you then about this, uh, the, the, the pipeline issue. I find this to be an, an interesting one also from a media perspective, because, uh, um, well, as, as we know, uh, over the past few years, uh, the United States has uh, pushed very hard for Germany not to develop this Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline with the Russians. And uh, uh, even to the point where there were sanctions placed on the European uh, developers and operators of this pipeline system as well. And before the, the pipelines were uh, attacked, uh, there was also, uh, you know, Biden and as well as other officials said that, uh, you know, if, if Russia goes into Ukraine, this pipeline will cease to exist. And uh, I think it was Sullivan who said after the attack that this pre presents an extraordinary opportunity. Uh, but still, the media insists there's no interest for for Washington to to attack this pipeline. So, but I'm I'm just curious. How, how, again, I'm not saying that uh, the United States did this. I don't have any evidence of it. I'm just my point is simply that the media coverage of this seems to be uh, a bit strange, if you will. I was just wondering what what is your take on the attacks on the Nord Stream pipeline, and also what do you think this uh, would mean for relations between the United States? And Europe, the Germans especially, I, I, we, we haven't heard anything from them in, in terms of a complaint towards the US, if you will, but also they haven't really pointed their finger uh, conclusively towards Russia. So uh, how do you read this uh, yeah, <laughs> dramatic uh, event? In 1914, Russia was Germany's number one trading partner and Germany was Russia's number one trading partner. In 1941, Russia was Germany's number one trading partner, or the Soviet Union was, and Germany was the number one trading partner with the Soviet Union. So the notion that if you trade with each other, you won't go to war, obviously, is a false assumption. And as a result, I was never critical of the Germans for simply looking for the cheapest energy they could buy to sustain their scientific industrial base. And that was what it was all about. And the, the assumption that was made in Washington is, well, if the Germans are importing and 40% and of their energy from Russia, that makes them dependent on Russia, and they could then become the slaves of Moscow. Well, that's absurd, because you also have to look at what the Germans are selling to the Russians. And you could make the argument that the Russians are slaves to German technology, engineering, and other capabilities. Uh, I think it was a terrible mistake to destroy that, that line. And I think the Germans will increasingly come to the conclusion that that was an act of war against Germany. And one can certainly argue it was an act of war against Russia. Now, we have never admitted to doing anything. And there is now a great deal of information in the net about uh, the United Kingdom uh, having ultimately been at the center of all of this. I am not in the government, in the administration, and I am not privileged to those conversations, so I don't know what the answer is. But from my standpoint, if I were a German or a Russian, I would see this as a very hostile act, an act that is antithetical to my national security, my interests, my strategic position. Now, interestingly enough, it appears that the Norwegians are now delivering natural gas to Poland. And the Poles are paying more for Norwegian natural gas than they did for Russian natural gas, which I guess is uh, interesting for the Poles, but they'd much rather pay more and get it from Norway than Russia, I'm sure. 
uh, I don't know what's going on, but it doesn't look good to me. And my concern from the beginning was NATO would probably not survive this if it lasted for more than six months. In fact, the EU may not survive it. There are too many divergent interests, but most important, the thing that we seem to be most interested in Washington is driving a wedge between Germany and Russia. And in doing the things that we have thus far, I think we will achieve the opposite outcome, that before the year is out, we will see a very different relationship emerge between Moscow and Berlin that we probably are not going to like. Um, yeah, just a last very brief question, given that we're running a bit out of time. Uh, uh, in, in this country, in Norway, we historically, well, at least through the Cold War, we have tried to have a balance between being a good neighbor to Moscow and a good ally to the US and NATO. Uh, since the Cold War came to an end, this is largely fallen apart. And I guess uh, Norwegian's, Norway's foreign policy posture has also turned, uh, yeah, changed a lot, maybe towards more aggressive. And, and now it's said we have made an agreement with the United States to develop four military bases on our coastline, uh, or sorry, not on our coastline, on our, on our territory, uh, which uh, the Russians may see as a possible uh, a front line against uh, their their interest in the Arctic. I was wondering how how do you see Norway's new role? Uh, again, I'm, <laughs> I know you're asking to in, in, analyze my country, but it's uh, just yeah, to get this outside exp expert on this. Well, you know, Norway is one of those countries that if you ask about it in the United States, you will hear people say, oh, I love Norway. Norway is wonderful. Norwegians are wonderful. Everyone feels that way. So Norway is, enjoys a very positive position with Americans. The, the issue for Norway is what is the strategic benefit to Norway of cultivating hostility with Russia? I, I can't, I, I, when I ask that question, I see no benefit to Norway from a bad strategic relationship with Russia. Now, obviously, the Norwegians have an alliance with the United States. We call it NATO, but on a bilateral level, it's very real. It's there also with the United Kingdom. But what do we know from history? We know that in 1940, Norway was neutral. Churchill discarded that out of hand, dismissed it out of hand and said, no, we must race to, to Norway and beat the Germans to it. If we don't take on Norway, then Norway will end up being occupied by the Germans. And he was joined in this by the president of France. Remember, they put together a force that was supposed to originally march across Norway and Sweden to join the Finns in fighting the Russians, which would then have made Great Britain and France, the enemies of both Russia or the Soviet Union and Germany at the same time. That didn't work out. And so the fallback position was, well, let's go to Norway. I don't think Norway benefited very much from the whole experience. And I don't think that we or the British right now can best enough if, if Norway needed it to rescue Norway. Now, I... That's just my personal observation. I don't think the Russians have any interest in attacking Norway. I don't think the uh, Russians want to isolate Norway. In fact, I don't think they care what Norway does. They would be happy to do business with Norway. 
But again, I am seeing Russia through a lens that's very different from, from what we in London and Washington are pushing. We're pushing this false paradigm. The, the revanchist Soviet leader is leading the new resurrected Soviet Union on a, on a bid to conquer Eastern Europe. See no evidence for it. Nothing could be further from the truth. But if you're sitting in Oslo and you believe that, then it may make sense to you to offer these bases. Uh, but I would urge Norwegians to give this careful consideration. There is no substitute for good relations with your neighbor. Uh, and it is advisable to, to cultivate good relations if you can. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any benefit to bad relations, and I don't think they're necessary. But I hold a minority opinion, obviously. Oh, I agree. And, uh, well... On those, that's great advice. I'll, we can leave it here. So I just want to thank you again, Colonel. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to yeah, speak with you. And uh, yeah, thanks again for uh, adding a very valuable uh, correction, if you will, to a very dangerous mainstream media uh, narrative. So thanks again. Thank you, Glenn.